All right, so first time back in the studio in a long time, we've got someone in the hot seat, Kieran Jack. And I just want to say that reading that, already he sounds like he should be famous or he should be doing a movie in the outback. I think of that and think straight away of Kangaroo Jack. I'm really sorry. <laughs> That's high praise. I thought, high praise. I thought you might have bounced up the stairs. You did bounce a little bit, but no, no. So Kieran Jack. Joshua has interviewed him in the past, so we're coming full circle where I'm being let in on the uh, the inside friendship circle, I think. Big deal today. Very excited. <laughs> Righto. So, Kieran, to start with, you look pretty happy with the idea of making a movie in the outback, oh, which mean, we might have to go back to because that kind of lit you up. But well. <laughs> in the past when we spoke, I think it was 2019, early 2019, we talked about your early journey into making independent comic books and you had a podcast at the time, which I'm not sure if that's still active, where you're interviewing other comic book creators. And since then, you've just been on this massive journey. And as we record, it's October 2023. Mm. You've done so much in that that period. But can we just go back a little bit and talk about that, just for people who maybe didn't catch that other episode, how you got into comics and drawing and illustrating and then maybe that first Kickstarter yeah. campaign, if we could keep that short and sharp. Yeah, good. yeah. Um, basically, 2015, I was just like, I need, I want to talk about comic books and independent comics and get into the field of it. I'd had always been drawing, so I was like, well, let's kind of merge the two together. So I started a podcast called The Halftime Effect and was talking to independent creators from all around Australia. And from there, it kind of thought, why don't I do my own comic book? Uh, I was a bit bored of the medium at the time. It was like same stories, same superheroes. Like, why can't I do this? So I basically dove in the deep end and it was kind of swim as I go. And my God, it was it was a challenge at the start, but it was so rewarding, you know, when that first book came out. And amongst doing the podcast and kind of getting a bit of insight in what to do and what not to do, it also really helped. So the way your eyes just kind of half rolled back in your head when you said deep end, yeah. Let's just talk a little bit about deep end then for a sec. In the right context. In the right, in the right <laughs> context, yes. Clearly you had some pre-existing ability to draw and mm-hmm. illustrate mm-hmm. and you felt, oh, well, that's probably going to be my path into this kind of medium yep. to create my own comics or yep. stories. When you say deep end, what do you mean by deep end? I didn't have a script for the first comic. I just went and started drawing these characters for the first book, which was The Talking Bread. It was, there's no script for it. It was just drawing panels as I kind of imagined them in my mind and continued to develop that. And then as I did the first book, I was like, all right, I need to do a script. So I went back to the drawing board and kind of taught myself how to write a comic script and, you know, reading comics my whole life. I was like, well, I've been doing it. So I'll try and emulate that into a script. And basically that's how it kind of formulated from there. But it was, it was definitely a, a tough process to go down to try and write a script around stories and, and kind of you, – you're writing for yourself, and Josh, you probably know this with writing music, but you've got to kind of tell a story that you want to tell. It's not about everyone else. And so that was the whole point of like for telling stories that I would like to read. Um, <laughs> okay, yeah. so just for people that maybe aren't familiar with how stories are crafted, yep. that's a conversation that could be two hours and probably <laughs> is best avoided. But let me ask something more precise, I yeah. guess. How far off drawing first – and developing the story that way, were you from an actual cohesive story? Uh, like when you started to find out more about scripting and story, did you find that, geez, I was miles off or I was closer than I expected? It was probably the middle. I, it wasn't perfect. <laughs> it definitely wasn't perfect. And there were definitely criticisms of it, but it was a learning process to kind of develop it and mm. 
you know, it took it took six months to release the first comic after we did the first Kickstarter. So it was definitely a, a, a lengthy process. That's okay. a, that's a little bit that I want to just touch on because a lot of people in a creative field, when they're talking about let's just jump in the deep end, they mm. just start doing stuff. Sort of what you've said, but you've actually been either smart or foolish enough yep. to fund it a little bit. Mm. So. How did you go about doing that? Because from what I've gathered, none of your things and your projects and the ones that we're going to be talking about mm. are actually you doing what someone foolish like me would do and just do things for the sheer love of it. <laughs> and I like, love's great, but it doesn't pay any bills. <laughs> Funnily enough, it was just that. Start. Yeah, it was okay. really that. I just did it because I loved it. Yeah. And then I saw uh, what's my uh, friends and peers were making money out of it. And I was like, well, I guess I should start doing that. I, yep. I can do this. So yep. that's where it all started to stem into looking at crowdfunding and then traveling with the books around Australia and selling them. And yep. so that's how it kind of, it was like a slight switch really. I, I love comics, but also can I make this my job? Yeah. <laughs> and that's always a tough moment for anyone that's doing anything creative when you first merge from the pure creative, mm -hmm. I guess some people would see that as the most legitimate form of the art yeah. into thinking, oh, well, how do I get, mm. at least for the, or to start with, with anything, how do I just cover the cost of doing this thing Yeah. so I'm not out of pocket for Correct. it? But also then how does it bring in some money if for no other reason so it can keep growing? Mm. Like, can you tell us about that first moment? Did you have any, I don't think we ever spoke about that. Did you have any confliction in yourself when you first thought, oh, well, I'm going to move this to try and make Mm. A little bit of bread, for the lack of a better term. There were there were definitely ah. times. <laughs> I love the bread puns. Talking bring, bread. Br bring the puns in. No, I don't usually do puns. I'm usually anti-puns. So. You know what? I've noticed over the years it brings out the puns. The book brings out the puns. People just start going for it. It's, yeah. I love it. Um, yeah, look, it it was definitely a learning curve in the sense of how do I really manipulate the the sales of this to actually continue making books because I, I can't just keep producing books and taking it in my own pocket. Yep. And I didn't want to do that. So going to Kickstarter and kind of thinking, oh, can't, will people come to this? And because of the the podcast that I'd been working on and kind of talking to people, that had already built an audience. People were willing to come and f support my work because I'd been supporting them through, you know, networking and, mm. and building that um, that relationship throughout the, uh, the few years I'd been podcasting for. Which I think people can also get a very good read on the intention behind that wasn't yeah. there. Like that's just an organic part yeah. of the process of you having a curiosity and actually caring about what other people are doing. Yeah. And then it's like, oh. It was and it was kind of overwhelming yeah. when I had yeah. that support come back in for the first release and it was like, okay, wow, this is this is a thing. People are willing to read my stories and <laughs> no matter how bad they were, yeah. come and support my work and appreciate it and kind of give me feedback. So well, that was great. I really enjoyed that part of it. Definitely was a need to make some dough. Like fund you, got to make that crust. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Gosh, I might put a, a cap on us. If you like us, like I like us, get onto punchingsideways.com, give us a bit of a likesy, have a bit of an exploration around, and maybe buy us a coffee. Let me let me just ask because you mentioned Kickstarter in there, and that's another thing that when I think about how you've rolled out your comic book journey and the graphic novels and everything we'll probably talk about that you've done since 2015 till now, mm. 
you've lent heavily on that platform yep. and found myriad ways, which has been amazing to me, to keep that idea fresh mm-hmm. to the people that are out there yep. and to keep expanding into new audiences that may then go back through the series, which you have multiple of now. Yep. How hard is it to keep going back? Not to, Maybe not so much to the platform, but to the network's over and over again yeah. and uh, do you feel that you're better at that more of a natural at it now and what was it tough to start with it was definitely tough it was kind of finding my audience and kickstarter was relatively new because it was launched in 2012 so it was kind of it was still very minimal amount of comic book creators using it mm-hmm. and i was like well how do i kind of bring people into back my story and it was a learning again another learning curve i was like oh, is are people going to want to donate like it, it was really frowned upon it was donating or pledging towards and i was like oh is that is that is that too i'm much uncomfortable with that personally <laughs> yeah. so i that's why i'm like sort of recoiling because that's where my resistance is with everything yeah. that i do and that's it, and that's yeah. where i was like well is it, is it the right thing to do? But then my mindset changed after the first couple. I was like, it's no longer about pledging or backing or donating. You're pre-ordering yeah. the books. The books already, you know, you've done your you've done your research. You've got a pre-order there. People know what they're getting for bang for buck. And I guess that's the relationship you build throughout yeah. each one that you do. And that's why I've been comfortable to go back because I've built an audience there to be able to go, hey, this is who I am. This is what I've got. You can support it. And you're actually funding the book to be produced, but you're also getting in return, you know, comics, loot, you know, mm. merchandise. And it was probably in anyone who spends time on the internet now is familiar with things like buy me a coffee mm. or Patreon or all those things. Yeah. And I had the same issue when I first started asking for donations mm-hmm. for shows. Yeah. Like I was probably seven or eight hundred podcast episodes mm. in of all these different shows I'd done before I'd ever asked for a donation. Yep. But then I heard a story and I don't remember who said it. It might have been the founder of Patreon maybe who I'm not particularly a massive fan of. Mm-hmm. But he said that throughout the entire course of human history, it really only has been since the 20s until about 2010 that artists weren't purely working off donation. Yep. Everything was having a sponsor. All of the art that we look at through history, music, actual visual art, paintings, it's all from sponsors. Yep. So that made me feel a little bit better about it. <laughs> like, oh, well, it's actually the last period of our life that may make us feel weird about it. That's yes. actually the anomaly. You're, you're 100% on the money there. And it's funny, more recently, I've learned that through the um, Creative Australia program that I've just been a part of. That It's like, you're not, you're not begging for anything. You're asking them to support your work in which they get something from it. Now, it might be physical or it might be emotional. They might not be able to perform in the arts, but they can actually donate to it or help build someone else's dream and philanthropy is the big word they like to use within that is that you're getting philanthropy to come on and help you yeah. with your work not that i'm discounting what mel said either because it's incredibly hard and even i find myself in those moments now i'm like yeah. oh asking for money it does feel like begging sometimes it does yeah. it really does and <laughs> it can be a little it can be a little off-putting i, I understand that yeah yeah i want to ask you is there a level of restriction that you feel with your creativeness when you're actually executing something because of this money attached to it because that's where in the past like I'm terrible at asking for money anyway but like even grants there's so many different things that or people that you've got to keep satisfied Mm. that it can sometimes go 
oh, you know, I'd just rather just do it myself in my own way so I don't have to, like, answer to anyone else. Absolutely. Yeah. There's uh, – I've found over the years definitely it's it's become a process of, like, do I want to do this again? Do I have – can I just go and release it? And at the same time it's like, well, there's stuff that I can offer and – get more out of it from my, you know, enjoyment from doing these things, people giving me feedback on, you know, they've read read something or they've bought something through Kickstarter, all these uh, platforms that we've used, and they get something from it. And it's that joy that I see my, dare I say, fans, I don't like using that word, but they're people who support my work. They get a kick out of what I produce and what I create. So they're, they're getting enjoyment. And that's what actually I've come to enjoy a lot more out of creating all this stuff. Yeah. Can you remember the first or like just one fan in like that just you're like, how do they even know who I am? Like, you know, that feeling yeah. where someone's just started re- like knows more about your work than you know about yeah. your work. What's that like? And can you just like. I can't remember the first, but I can remember someone who came up to me recently at one of the last big conventions I did. And he'd been listening to the podcast since day dot. And he'd been supporting all my releases. And he's like, I'm a huge fan. I'm actually working on my own comic book now, <laughs> thanks to your your inspiration. And I was like, wow, I mean, that's one person I got through to to actually go out and yeah. start making their own stories. It was just, it was better than making any sales over the weekend. Yeah. Like, just take that with you and you're on cloud nine. Yeah. 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 Uh, it's a really, like, I imagine it's a really nice feeling to sort of it like, is. just go, oh. Cool. Yeah. I didn't even know who this person was. No. And they've been like following me yep. and not in a creepy way, but like, <laughs> well, it's sort of, it feels like conflicting sometimes. It, it can be. And I used to be that way. I was like, oh, I don't like adding them on the edge on Facebook or social media. I'm like, oh, I don't know if I want to do it. But then like I've become very um, supportive in that and yeah. I'm happy to do that now. Yeah. I mean, they all know my address when I send out rewards. So <laughs> it's not, there's no, there's no privacy there. Yeah. And one thing that I've seen you do across this whole journey mm. is really lock in on, I'm not just giving you a story, but I'm giving you these really unique, almost bespoke extras mm-hmm. with every project. Mm-hmm. If you commit to this one, you're going to get the, the story and that's going to continue into the next Kickstarter yeah. and the next comic or next story. But you're going to get all of these extra little things that I've also put all this thought into. And we've got some of them on the bench here and we'll probably post a photo. There's just this amazing little cluster mm. <laughs> of stuff sitting. Badges. On, yeah, badges stickers. and stickers. It's all these little bits of it. I think, did you call them swag? It's loot. Loot. Yeah, yeah, I think that's probably a better word for what it is. And how much time do you spend crafting for each comic mm. release, all the little extras that go with it? Oh, there's an ample amount of time to do it all and kind of craft it and see how I could do it differently. Yeah. Um, but I'm, a better question, Kira, might be how do you know that you're on the right track, that it's the right kind of loot? I'm not. I'm definitely not. <laughs> I, I'm I'm doing that for my, purely for myself. It's just I love this kind of stuff. So I'm like, well, you know, if if there's people out there that enjoy it, they'll, they'll pick it up. And it's a bonus at the end of the day for the reader if they enjoy it. They get stickers. They might not use stickers, but they might give it to their kids. And it's- it's been successful. It's been a lucky success, I'd say. Is that part under the same banner of funding or is that in a different iteration it's, of that? It's basically a 50-50. So yeah. what I do is I've, I use 
I give myself 50% of what it is going to cost to get it done and then I'll put it onto the um, my own out of my own pocket well out of the business now yeah. I'm able to kind of fund it that way and it's it continues on at yeah. the conventions I can sell them online you yeah. know, any show that I do so it's kind of it's all almost mutated into one big gigantic yeah. monster <laughs> yeah, they're really cool Thing. I have no idea what any of it's about, but they look good. They're all shiny, okay, so right? <laughs> you said the word monster, mm-hmm. and that might be an inelegant term for this series that you've created, but mm. they do have some creatures and some pretty strange characters along the way, yep. monsters potentially in there as well. Mm. Can you just give us the quick two-minute version of just the stories that you've put out since we last spoke? Well, the first one, Talking Bread, I mean, it pretty much speaks for itself, the Talking Bread. They're running around 18 slices of sentient bread. Then we've got uh, In Purgatory, which is the story of life after death, which tells it through the eyes of Grim Reaper. Got The Apparition, which is a parody on a certain superhero that I won't name for legal reasons. Yes, let's uh, not put that out. <laughs> yes. And then we've also got, um, now that I'm producing some with some friends, we've got Amphibian Noir, which is about three psychedelic assassin frogs. And then we've got um, Super RBA, which is a bit of a manga and stop inspired series. Yeah. And that's all been through the, the Kickstarter kind of Majority, yeah. Seventy-five yeah. percent of it has been, and then we've just released them off our own back when we're, you know, able to, and we want to get it out quickly. And we've got it, you know, we might have a convention coming up. And we need a new book out, so we'll quickly <laughs> pump that out. And do you ever get? Do, that. do you ever think there's a story that you really want to make that just sits completely outside of that mm-hmm. channel that you've built up for the talking bread and apparition and all that? Is there anything Nothing. along the way that you've just thought, oh, that probably isn't going to work at all with yeah. that audience? Mm. There's nothing I don't want to touch upon. I just I, I kind of have fun world building now. I'm actually enjoying writing a lot more than illustrating. That's not taking away from my illustrations, but I, I don't think there's anything I don't want to touch. I'm happy to dive into anything in the any worlds of entertainment. You can find a connection with nearly any person in the street. Yes. Like if you try. Yeah. So the likelihood of you know whatever crazy coming out of your head, mm-hmm. there's a someone else that is a kindred spirit somewhere and now with like the ability to have things online and all those things like that distance and the gap between people being able to find you and it yeah. like the accessibility is definitely there for absolutely sure. yeah and there's there's gonna you're always gonna find an audience it might not be the biggest audience but you'll find an audience why horror why horror yeah okay so i've i've always loved comics but my favorite medium in film is horror I like being on the edge of my seat when I'm watching it. I like to be a little bit anxious about what's going to happen. As a 12-year-old, I was allowed to walk into the video store because I knew them so well and rent you know, R-rated films that oh. were horror films. And I just, I've got a fascination for horror. I love the anticipation, you know, on the edgiest seat, basically. So always, always loved horror. <laughs> I remember one of the first conversations you and I ever had mm was prior to a recording of the halftone effect, I think it was, yep. at the time. And I said that it's the genre I'm least interested in. Yep. And you didn't kick me out of your house. <laughs> so that was appreciated. <laughs> Look, it's definitely not for everyone. No. Horror is definitely not for everyone. It's uh, Yeah, it's not for me, I will say, but it doesn't necessarily mean. Is there a level for you where even as a 12-year-old you knew it wasn't real? Do you know what I mean? Like, Because some people can go like, Get really, yeah. you're saying edgy mm. seat and that. Mm. Some people will take things too literally mm. and not see it for what it is. Yep. See, there's lots of films like Scream and Halloween where they're real people. Yeah. And real people are where it, I think, is 
the worst kind of horror for me because yeah. it's like these are people that everyday people could do. Yeah. And that's what that just freaked me out as a kid. I was like, you know, that's scary. Yeah. That's that's probably where it really does draw a line. Whereas like supernatural horror, I'm like, yeah, this is cool. Like Evil Dead, ah, it's 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 comical style horror with over the top graphics and <laughs> acting. Yeah, yeah. So when you first started to try and bring that horror influence into mm. your drawing, illustrating, and then into the stories, yep, was it harder to integrate horror into that medium than maybe you expected it to be? Moving from like a film. Because for people who don't know, mm. I know you yep. primarily even more so than all of this yep. as an absolute film-loving nut. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. You are one of the few people I think of where I think who loves film the most. Yep. It's you and probably my, one of my best mates, Rudy. Yeah, yep. yep. that's so true. That's very true, yes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm probably in a competition now and Rudy's probably a little yeah, bit well, what you'd be, You're 1A and 1B. Yeah. So was that a hard thing to do authentically for yourself? Uh, no, actually. Thinking about it today before I came in, it was like the talking bread is Frankenstein. It's the story of Frankenstein with bread. And you can you can kind of put those connections to a lot of stories you write where you think, oh, what, what would be the influence of these stories? And it's it's bled through to my writing. It's, it's bled through to my art very much so. Um, that Very much that German expression style. It's bled into what I do with okay. Impergatory. So you might not. You probably do know you mm. want, but our show is all about going into weird detail. Yeah. So what do you mean by German expression style? So the- um, so back in like the 1920s, it was, you got German expression films like um, Nosferatu, Dr. Calgary's Cabinet, um, films like that that were very angular styled films, black and white. And that's where I kind of got a lot of my influence from in my art style. Granted, there is a lot of comical cartoon styles from the 90s, but very much that kind of um, artwork inspired me to want to create illustrations like that and so it really did bleed into it and more so now like i'm watching them all over again for halloween it's, you know we're in the month of halloween so I'm, i've got to watch horror movies so i'm in there watching all the 19 20 and 30 german expression horror films and there's some really like they're all silent uh, or they're silent or they're in german so you've got um subcaps on trying to read them can you explain to me what you mean by angular like an because my brain goes one way, but I want to make sure that it's- Yeah, so yeah. Um, it's shapes and, um, you know, they've got the shapes and the colours, like they're all black and white, but you've got grey tones that are kind of bleeding off each other. And it kind of tells the story without, you know, not giving any verbular context to it. You know, the, the mood of a room, you know, if someone's about to be um, interrogated or they're about to be murdered, it, it becomes a very narrow, closed-in space that would kind of, you, you can feel the tension building up. Uh, that, that's what really fascinates me about art. You can tell a story without telling any words. Okay, let me ask you a question. This mm -hmm. is for people that may or may not have seen Nosferatu. Mm -hmm. Do you watch that in the dead of night or the middle of the day? Usually the dead of night. Because <laughs> <laughs> I wouldn't be, from the one time I watched it, that's definitely a midday movie for me. Yeah, it's a midday movie for oh, you? Just the yep. silent nature of that movie creeps me out more than anything that's happening in it. <laughs> Yeah, definitely. Yeah, it's it's a creepy movie. It's yeah. a creepy movie. There's no sound. If it, people who don't know, it's just one of the or maybe the original great vampire movie. So yeah, the original one that got sued eventually for uh, ripping off Dracula. Yeah. Oh, yeah. really? Yeah. yeah. Okay. So it's got a lot of history behind it in that sense because they got taken to the courts because yeah. uh, they were basically plagiarizing <laughs> the original Bam Stoker's Dracula. Also. For those people listening, once you finish listening to this today, mm. just go and look up all the weird stuff that happened on the set of that movie yeah. on YouTube. You might get a bit creeped out. Yep. 
Righto. So I, I won't. Uh, Mel no, won't. No, not at all. No, she's I, like I hate silence. So <laughs> the thought of watching a something scary with no like background noise as well, and it's all up to my brain. That's not somewhere that I like. <laughs> well, that's not a place like I don't want to be in my brain in the best of times, let alone with like something scary, angular, dark shapes coming at yeah. me. <laughs> <laughs> That's understandable. I can, I can I can appreciate that. So we we've got you here today in part yeah. to talk about this new project, mm-hmm. which sounds really exciting. Which we'll get you to tell us about. Mm-hmm. What I want to know though is what do you feel like you've improved the most at leading up to this most mm-hmm. recent project? Which I get the feeling you're pouring so much of the lessons and the knowledge and the experience you've had from multiple books now into this new project. Yep. What can you look back on and think I really developed most strongly in that area? Well, it's in the writing. It's definitely in the writing aspect, but it's in character building. Um, I've become really focused on character building rather than world building. I think we've become very obsessed about that as storytellers in today's world. I'd much rather focus on character development than world building and really honing in on finding relationships with the reader. So the reader might find a character that they automatically recognise as themselves and drawing upon that. And hopefully that's what they can take away from the story that I'm telling about that certain character. So just for people that maybe that was a little bit film school nerdy, Mm. how would you define maybe if you were to take two modern films Mm. or TV shows, a really character-driven thing versus world building so people know exactly what you mean? I'm going to name one of your favourites, Buffy. I think there's a lot of character building in that. And I think for this day and age especially, it was before it was ahead of its time, female lead actors, you know, there was a lot of female characters out there that are female women looking for people to draw to. I think Buffy was a big influence on that. And, um, you know, you've got characters in there like Willow and, and Buffy herself and they were, they were strong They were, and a lot of people have related to that and it's continued on in pop culture today. There's a lot of love for those characters. Yeah. And maybe like world building, would that be something maybe more like the MCU? Correct. Yeah. 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 Where it's less character driven specifically yep. and it's about the scale of yep. everything. It's be- definitely become that. And was your work maybe more world building to begin with and then it's narrowed down to character? Uh, I'd say it, it's well, it's always been character building. Um, in Purgatory, which is the death, ver- death death story I'm telling, that was very world building, but I was trying to make it more centralised around the characters in the world that they live in. But you are right, MCU is definitely more now about world building, which is really frustrating. What is MCU? Marvel films. Oh, Marvel Cinematic yeah. Sorry. Marvel. Yeah, I, I had a feeling it was something like that. I love that I you wanted, don't know that. That I wanted to, yeah. It's, I'm the person that you would probably not like. I've not watched any of the, the things that well, conventionally. He's but, got a look of, is that a challenge or a threat? It is. No, nice. well, yeah. I mean, I'm, you, you might it. walk away today going home watching going, some German no, expression films. I'm, yes, I'm more likely to, <laughs> I'm very much story orientated mm-hmm, though, mm-hmm. right? So, your little background bit and just talking about how you've created the comic mm-hmm. and the reason behind it makes me immediately invested. Yep. Whereas if someone says to me, watch Harry Potter because it's like the best mm. thing ever, I'm like, is everyone else doing it? No, I'm not doing it. And it's three hours of my time that I can't invest in. Yeah. So, but I'm invested now because of the process. Yeah. That's, that's how you get me into but if you just say, I like this because of That's, this, yeah. then- That was me at the start. Yeah. yeah. Just, what, just read it. You'll like it. <laughs> no, no, but now I've learned enough the craft of like how yeah. to pitch myself and how to how to actually tell what I'm- yeah. 
and why, the story I'm telling. And why, why your story over the myriad mm-hmm. thousands or hundreds of thousands of stories yes. out there. Yes. Why buy another Spider-Man comic when because, you can buy mine? <laughs> because yeah. that's changed also in the mm-hmm. time that you've been making the books is we, we all felt overwhelmed by social media and online mm-hmm. stuff mm-hmm. in 2017, 18, 19. Well, now in 2023, we're in 10x that. So it's so hard to break through. But let's get, before I get too tangential, <laughs> let's talk about Lady of the Swamp, the new project. Yes. It's loosely based off a true story that happened in Gippsland. Not Drome Street. No, not okay. Drome. No, no, no affiliation. <laughs> Unf- well, I mean, there might be a story there. You might yeah. have to tell me that afterwards. No, 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 it might be the sequel. It's loose- oh, I like this though. Now already, it's loosely. It is loosely based off. Mm-hmm. Okay, mm-hmm. tell me. Yeah, so there's a there's a story that it's a true story, and in Gippsland, uh, a homestead called Tullerate, and there was a lady who lived there nearly sixty years ago now, and she disappeared, and they've never found her body. And there's a lot of suspicion or a lot of stories are going around of suspicion of who did it. And there was the caretaker, the property caretaker. There was a few other ramblings of people that might have done it, but they never solved the case. The house homestead's still there today. It's actually a farm. I know the farmers who are on the property and that's how I kind of got to know them through my other business, which is graphic design. I was able to work with them and they, they gave me some information on it and I've read a couple of books and that's how it kind of all amalgamated, yeah. Oh, yeah. wow. Are okay. you going to solve it with your own- <laughs> It's it's fiction, so I- Well, I know, but I mean, imagine if the fiction turned out to be like, mm, you know how you say mm-hmm, that people relate mm, to something mm-hmm, and mm. someone's reading your comic and all of a sudden it's the investigator, the detective sergeant, whatever, and he's gone, there was a horror scene in this and <laughs> we did not explore that. <laughs> Look, if that happens, then that's, that's high praise from them. <laughs> I've been able to write a fictional story that relates back to it and help solve that crime, but I don't know. <laughs> okay, so you've got this plate of mm. ingredients currently that yep. are mostly or loosely based on real stories. Mm. How have you put those together and yep. what's become mm. with Lady of the Swamp? Uh, it's 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 a it's a mutation of both 80s horror and definitely 90s horror. Someone who read it said to me recently, oh, it's very much, I know what you did last summer mixed with Evil Dead. And I was like, cool, my job's done. I've, I've exactly done what I wanted to do with this book and kind of have that relationship with those films. And it has that, I guess, that Australian authenticity behind it. We all know the Australian lingo and kind of really diving into that and- it's based in the 90s, so I'm really fleshing out stuff that I grew up on as a 90s kid. So, like nostalgic elements, do you mean? Very or? much so. Um, you know, we've got a milk bar. There's a huge milk bar scene and it's like it's kind of playing on those like nostalgia, kind of giving you comfort while you're reading it and looking at that. You know, you've got your Walkmans, Game Boys, things like that. People relate to as they're reading it like, oh, it's little pieces. And they're like comfort pieces as they continue in the story and then they start to get them nice and relaxed and then we go into the the nitty-gritty. So, you mentioned something about there's an Australian connection there Mm, mm. and I guess in television and film and this is something that Anthony Simcoe said to me who was a Farscape and also one of the actors Mm, on The Castle mm. that creativity in Australia, particularly in the visual medium, can get stuck in hyper-realism that you can never move out of what exactly would have happened in real life in that moment. So clearly you've moved that away a little bit Mm -hmm. into a different medium where you have a bit more scope to move outside of hyper-realism. So 
why did you think that this story mm-hmm. and your comic book or mm-hmm. your abilities were like why did you think they would match up uh it's I don't think it's done enough in the medium form for like comic books. There's it's slowly starting to become a bit more of a, you know, horror comics and um, that kind of Australian style storytelling within the story, um, the medium itself. So I was like, well, you know, you've got films coming out like Talk to Me, uh, that's been a huge success worldwide, and it's really emphasising me on Australian culture and things that we do in Australia. And I don't know if you guys have seen it yet, but it's it's definitely, it's it plants itself strongly in that kind of demographic. And that's when I saw that. I was like, that that's what I'm trying to emphasize here as well, is that there's an Australian culture around, you know, 90s kids, 80s kids, doesn't matter where you're from, but it, it kind of plants itself within the world of that horror genre. You, you mentioned that someone has said, it's like, uh, I know what you did last summer mm-hmm. and that. So, that means to me, mm-hmm. so when I think Kickstarter and you've put your concept mm-hmm. out there, how yeah. much of this concept is actually out there that someone has already put a label on what it is? Um, not enough. Not really enough out there at the moment. I've kind of kept it back from the, the yeah. zeitgeist of social media because I don't want to spoil too much. Yeah. You know, with it's it's quite funny because writing a horror comic is a lot difficult than writing any other story I've written before. It's a lot harder because you can always flick to the page and find the, the, the kill scene or the murder scene. And I don't want to do that. I want to kind of build that anticipation up. So, um, this was the illustrator that actually made that comment of it. And right. he said to me, he's like, it's very much these two genres and I see where you're coming from. And he goes, that's that's why I like it. Sorry, I've gone off the question now. But no, it's haven't. it's kind of- uh, I want to make sure that I'm kind of keeping in those those worlds that I'm familiar with because the readers themselves, who I know hopefully will come to it, will go, okay, yeah, he's definitely influenced by these kind of 90s horror films, but he's also heavily influenced by these directors and actors. So you've got Lady of the Swamp mm-hmm. and originally you used to illustrate your own comics. Yep. Now you are focused on the storytelling, which- You've got someone else in that is yep. going to be and has been doing the illustrations for this. Firstly, how did you find that person? Secondly, what was it like to trust someone to paint what's in your head? Logan, who is illustrating, he's actually done one of the books on our label called Enfibre Noir. It's his creation. He wrote and illustrated it. And I, when I first saw his art, I was like, I already had this story in the back of my mind. And when I first saw his artwork in the first book he released, I was like, this is the guy that I want to do the book. My art style just didn't fit the story I wanted to tell. It was too cartoony. Mm-hmm. And again, I didn't want to pigeon my, pigeonhole myself as being that cartoon illustrator, but I just couldn't emphasize the story I was telling with that with that art. So I was like, I approached Logan and I said, hey, look, this is the idea I've got. It's originally it started as a 60-page graphic novel, now blown out to 96 pages. But he was all on board. He was like, yes. I pitched him the idea. He said, cool, let's do it. And so that was a year ago. And we just kind of started hitting up back and forth whilst he was working on his projects, whilst I was working on mine. And I wrote the script and gave it to him. He read it. I was very clear about the direction I was taking with it. And he started sketching up straight away characters. And just started shooting across to me. He's like, I'm thinking this for this character or this for this character. And I was like, you're envisioning what I was already thinking in my mind. So I was like, it was a, it was a match straight away. And I knew I've made the right choice here. Yeah. Let me ask a follow-up question to Mel's, mm. which I think was a great one. Mm. Obviously, when you first expand into letting someone else into your creative universe, mm-hmm. 
certain parts of that process, like decision-making or how fast you can get from A to B to C may slow down. Yep. But there's also being able to share the excitement along the way, but even maybe more so share the joy of finishing something with another person that takes some getting used to and it also is unexpected sometimes. How did you find that initial period of maybe giving a little bit of your world to someone else? I've, I've come accustomed to it over the span of creating comic books because I've been giving people um, the chance to do variant covers for my comic books and, you know, do a couple of pages here or there for a story that I don't want to – well, I've, I, I do a guest cameo in a lot of my books, so I'll get them to come on. So, that's kind of built the trust and relationships and how to kind of work the, the artist and how they kind of work in their own world and kind of getting the best out of them. So, find the person that will be right for the job is the hard part. But when you find them, it's kind of making it comfortable for them so they feel relaxed and they're happy to go into it. And so, bringing Logan into it, it was about making him feel like, all right, we've got this time span to get this job done. You know, let's let's start working together. And we're doing like weekly catch-ups now on Zoom because he lives in Bendigo. And we're able to like just back and forth and get really excited about it. And then it's like two o'clock in the morning. <laughs> I think that's one of the things sometimes when you're doing um, something creatively, mm. there's all these ideas yeah. and when there's not a necessarily a time crunch of, yeah. you know, you need to release this episode here, there needs to be structural things in place mm-hmm. to keep both parties accountable. Yeah. And the more you build a relationship, this is obviously a re- – oh, it's not obvious. It's a reference to Josh and I. The more you build a rapport and relationship someone sometimes and know more about their world, mm-hmm. sometimes the more likely you are to give them an out. Yeah. And sometimes then you've got to reiterate and come back and go, no, we've got to sort of treat this like a job. Even though our friendship isn't a job, this Correct. is a job where we've come unstuck several times mm-hmm. is being too considerate yep. to the other party. Correct. Have you had to navigate that? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. And how, how did you, like, when it sort of come into play? It, it's tough because you kind of have to bring down bring down the foot and you're like, come on, we've got to get, we've got to get heads in the game. Now producing comics now is part of what I do is, like, I've got guys that I've been responsible for and it's like you need to get that story up. Where is it? Why? Where are we at? What's happening? And it's kind of nurturing those relationships, yep. but also kind of being the general and saying, come on, we've got to get this done. You've, you've really got to put the foot down and get it done. And it's hard. It's it's not easy. And that's why not, not all the people want to do it, kind of be that person who's in charge and steers the ship. At the same time, I kind of enjoy it because sometimes you can get more out of them when they realise, oh, no, I've got to put my head down and get, get the job done. And then that, that end result was worth it. Funny, when you said really early on when you were like, oh, I could do this mm. as a job. Mm. That label on something that gives you so much joy mm. even can remove a level of joy from it. How have you gone balancing it so that it's a job, inverted commas, but you're still, like I can hear you talking about it and seeing his face is lighting up when he's mm. talking about different things. There's clearly levels of like you really still enjoy what you're doing. It's not a a grinding because it feels like people will say that's the dream. You know, mm. you know, you do something that you love, and it's mm. never a, you know you're never going to work and da da. Yeah. There's that's 
very unrealistic. It's very unrealistic, yeah. I, like, I just want to reiterate, <laughs> if anyone does that, they're lying. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. They're lying because if you care about something, that puts pressure on yourself immediately from no one else. So yep. can you talk to me a little bit about that navigation just please. So, f- first off, I don't have a social life <laughs> anymore. That's that's really yeah. the, the realism of it. I might see my mates once once a month if I'm lucky. Yeah. You know, I've, I've got a family, so they're, they're my first responsibility, but it's I don't have a social life. I, I'm working in the evenings, you know, whilst everyone's asleep until ungodly hours and kind of stewing away at what we're doing and where, you know, things like getting ready for the next convention or, or preparing for the next year. I mean- just uh, this week, we've kind of set out a schedule for the next two years of what our releases are and what we're going to do for funding and how do we kind of tackle the the world of uh, crowdfunding and conventions and, and balance it all. So there's a lot of little pieces that kind of fall into place that we've got to think ahead of. And I say we now because I've got two other guys that are, are working on there. They're creating their own comics, but they also have an input to the the releases that we put out. One might be doing a different job whilst the other guy's doing something else. It's it's a it's an integral part of what the team building is. It's hard. It's not easy. It's definitely not easy. But if you do love it, you'll get a kick out of the the good times. And there are gonna be there's gonna be rough times. There's hard times with anything you do. And I, I don't I don't believe in what you're saying. If you enjoy your job, you'll never work a day in your life. That's not true. It's it's not yeah. true. Yeah. Yeah. You've got to you've got to work hard. And yeah. it's it's starting to pay off for us. I'm seeing now after eight years of hard work, it's slowly starting to pay off for us. Now let's just like really focus on mm-hmm. that eight years, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Because that's the stuff that don't, they're the overnight successes, right? Mm, well. Where no one, but no one sees any no. of that grind. No. And then all of a sudden, I mean, you've made it big now. You're on punching sideways. So Huge. then you're you're launch, and once you're on yeah. there, everyone's going to go, "Wow, where did he come from?" Like, like but that back, yeah. that back grind. And sometimes I think like it's really important, like you're saying, reflectively, to go a bit back into that process because when you're in it you think you're getting nowhere mm-hmm. and yeah. i've wanted to, I, there's no right. without doubt i've wanted to kick in the towel before i was just like yeah it's not this is not doing it for me it's just not working and that was i'd say halfway point it was just like you know the, it's a tough medium like the medium is well and truly over 100 years old now that i work in so it's kind of like it's not a lot of people are reading comic books, realistically, when you look at the, the demographic of what they are. A lot of manga, a lot of Japanese comic books, are they're huge. I mean, that's the biggest trend, but it's it's not what it used to be. And being an Australian comic book artist, it's hard because America really is the, the founding land for comic books. And in Australia, it's probably not as a, a popular medium as what, you know, film, television, uh, TikTok music is so you kind of i'm throwing tiktok to next that's what I'll, I'll, I'll get to that later on but it's it's it is a part of the the general popularity of pop culture so one thing you've done mm-hmm. and you talked about hard work and in the australian context for you to meet people mm-hmm. there's not really a lot of localized comic conventions that are happening regularly like there might be in mid even smaller markets in the US, but pretty much every mid to large market will have a major convention. Yeah. So comic creators and people in that industry can spend part of the year on the road getting face-to-face with many, many more people than you would have the opportunity to in Australia. Yeah. 
So you've taken a couple of big swings over the years and got yourself a table at our few major conventions. And being major conventions means they can ask for major money. Would you say that's one of your biggest swings that you've taken, getting yourself out face-to-face with people at those conventions? That was. It was. It, I walked away from, in the first year, I worked, walked away from a convention where I went into the red big time. And I was just like, oh, wow, this is bad. I didn't, and it was because we were competing against Chris Hemsworth, who was at the convention. And I was just like, oh, you can't compete with that. And- you, you, know, you mean competing, you've got a- Competing for dollar. You've got dollar, a $10 yeah. comic and he's got a $150 headshot. Keep going. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> You're looking at me like 600 bucks for a headshot with Chris Hemsworth. Yeah. <laughs> and um, I was like, oh, I, I walked away from like, this is not working. I can't, I can't put out all this money. And you'd know, Josh, don't you drive out for gigs and stuff. Like you've got a lot of money to pour out before you even do the show. And I'm like, this isn't working. What am I doing wrong? And I had to go back and recalculate everything and, and restructure it. I wasn't ready to throw in the towel at that stage. I was just like, this this has to change. And so that's where I kind of, that's where I became uh, really inspired to go, all right, I need to get more work out. I need to really change my pitch. I need to work on who I am and what I'm telling. And that's where it kind of changed for me. It's a big swing. It still is a big swing. I mean, the, over the last four years, what we've gone through has been a huge swing at trying to figure out how does that all work? How do, how do I make an income out of that? How do I keep the wheel turning? More recently, as of last year, I actually started pitching the work to producers and um, studios, which was a completely different ball game, which like I was not ready for. But at the same time, it's been an am- amazing chance to talk to people and kind of work out who I am as a creator and what I want to achieve within the next next eight years. So you mean TV and movie producing? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Can we talk quickly about the campaign Mm -hmm. around Lady of the Swamp, but also what you can say about some of the grants and things and how that process worked. Because I've heard from even former guests of this show that the grants process in the arts Mm -hmm. is a whole job in and of itself and it's exhaustive to the point of, is it worth it sometimes? So can you tell us what you can about that? It, it, It is exhausting. It is, I've been applying for that for three years now, the same one I got. So it's the called the Creative Australia Match Labs program. And what they do is they will match your funding. Whatever you make, they'll match that. So you have to have the target and you have to have um, documentation of what it is you're going to be applying for and why you're making this thing. Um, so I applied for it for the last two projects we worked on were unsuccessful, but it actually was stopped over the whole pandemic thing. Which was just uh, that seems so foolish. Yeah. Anyway, yeah, yeah. Well, it's kind of it's the thing about that was that it had to be in per- you have to do an in person class for two days, and so you have to go in and learn about you know crowdfunding and all that, all the all the um, bits and pieces that go to it. So that's why they kind of put Is it that on pause. Prior to application, it's when you've got the application. So when you've been granted the application, they'll take you away for two days. And, so just to clarify, so they don't listening. train you on how to crowdfund yourself. Before you even, you basically have to say that you can do it and then they'll train you. You have to pitch why you deserve the fund. So they're matching your, in this case, Kickstarter result Yeah, is what they're matching. Yeah, so it doesn't have to be Kickstarter. It could be any form of um, crowdfunding or philanthropy. They'll actually, like there's a lot of um, film producers who were at the event and they're getting their projects by big philanthropists who are going to donate a lot of money to their, their short film. Yeah. So it doesn't have to be Kickstarter. There's a lot of options out there, but it, 
the Kickstarter was one of the options that was there. So they said, yeah, that's that's fine. Okay, not to go on a massive tangent, but mm. Mel brings up something super interesting. As someone that's been crowdfunding successfully mm-hmm. for nearly a decade, yep. What do you get out of going to a two-hour or two-day class, or were you sitting there thinking, "Oh, that's not been my experience"? Well, that's funny because I was at the start of it. I was like, at the start of the show, I was talking about how you know I don't like asking for money, and the the idea they tell us at this this two-day seminar was that ask, don't be afraid to ask, because the worst they're going to say is no, and I was like, oh wow, that's exactly right why why should i be afraid about putting my art out there because everyone would like to consume i hate saying this word consume my art but they will people will consume your product if it's something that they like so don't be afraid to ask the question if you ask the question the worst you're going to get is no the best you might get is they might want to fund your whole campaign yeah so my mindset has completely changed i was always i'll do a kickstarter but i won't promote a lot of my personal page whereas they're like no no promote it on your personal page put it down everyone's throat because they might see it quickly and they'll go, I'll come back to that later. But if you keep telling people about it, keep telling them, telling them, yes, they get exhausted by it and they might say, oh, just go away. We don't want to hear it. But those other people that might be interested in what you're doing, there's always someone out there that's interested in what you're doing. And that's what I took away from that that two-day clinic was like, okay, cool. I, I have been doing this all wrong. Well, Kieran, Thank you so much for joining us again on Punching Sideways. Oh, guys, it's thank been, you. It's yeah. been awesome. And one thing that's awesome for me having, well, it's been four plus years since mm. we last spoke, is just seeing how much more confident you are oh, wow. and relaxed you are to talk about your own work. Yeah, thank you. Not that you weren't before, but it just shows that along the way you've just matured into yeah. the creator that you are now. Yeah. So I want to finish up with one 30-second question. Go for it. Kieran turned up wearing a Blink-182 shirt. <laughs> Did you get tickets to Blink-182? No, I haven't yet. <laughs> yet. Yes. I will be getting them probably the day of. <laughs> yes. Well, good luck with that because I know we do have a few listeners that mm-hmm. I'm aware of that are also big Blink-182 fans and yep. they're hanging out for that same thing. Yeah, so. absolutely. Righto. So we'll include the links to Lady of the Swamp, all of Kieran's yep. work, also to his website. So if you're local to the Opera area, he also does some incredible work for businesses around here, which is I've checked out when I reconnected with him. I was mm. like, wow, your work is just at a different level now. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, check that out. That'll be in the show notes. And, yeah, thanks, mate. Yeah, thank you both. It's been amazing to come back on the show and talk about it. <laughs> yeah, cheers. Thanks.